Thank you for joining IEB There. And now your host, Randall Rothenberg. Over to you, Randall. Good afternoon. It's June 9th, 2020. And if it's 2 p.m. on the East Coast, that means it's time for IAB There, where we are all there for our daily live stream in which we connect the digital advertising ecosystem to itself, to each other. It's a place where CEOs and COOs and CPOs and CDOs can get together with their teams and listen to industry leaders find out what's going on in our marketplace. I would like to introduce our guest for today. It's Rajiv Goel, co-founder and CEO of Pubmatic. Pubmatic is one of the uh, top SSPs in the entire digital advertising industry. Uh, he's been at this for years. Uh, he's been a serial entrepreneur who has raised uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars for various companies. Uh, you uh, co-founded uh, Pubmatic with your brother, I think uh, probably, was it 10 years ago now? Uh, over 10, 13 years, so 2006. Yeah, gracious. right. Gracious. Well, well I, I'm going to ask you a question later on about what it's like working with family. Uh, sure. But, but I want to ask you, Rajiv, uh, I, I should, before I ask you, I should also point out to the audience that uh, you are also one of my bosses. So <laughs> I, uh, you've been a longtime board member of, uh, of the IEB and also a great advisor uh, to me. Uh, to Dennis Buckheim on the IEB Tech Lab, David Cohen, our new president. So, um, so that means that I will only ask you hard questions. <laughs> Great. Well, you're doing important work at the IEB, so I'm, I'm honored to be a part Thank, of it. Thanks for joining. Let me ask you a big, dumb question before we get to the, uh, the very provocative meat of the matter. Um, and uh, the, that provocative meat of the matter is your projection that the internet and internet advertising are going to double within the next couple of years. But before we get to that, I, I just need to ask you a stupid question on behalf of all of us kind of fake smart people out there. What today actually is an SSP or a DSP? Are they in fact the same thing or just slightly different things built on the same backbone? And how do you fit into the larger scope of both the programmatic side of the industry, but digital marketing and advertising more broadly. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start because it definitely has been evolving uh, over the years, as you can imagine. So, you know, the SSP, I think is sell site platform is very important in helping media companies, right? Whether they're traditional media companies with digital properties or mobile app developers or broadcasters, bring their digital ad inventory into the programmatic ecosystem. And I think as we all recognize, programmatic advertising, digital advertising is more and more about real-time infrastructure, data, uh, processing speeds. These are technical uh, domains where you need a high degree of expertise. And the typical you know, journalistic uh, company that is creating great content and connecting with audiences, they don't have that skill set, right? They have many other great skills. Uh, but being deep in the in the data and in the infrastructure is is not something that they're built for, and so as uh, one of the leading SSPs, uh, we're very focused on that infrastructure. Uh, but I think to your question, you know, we have positioned ourselves in market really as the SSP of choice for agencies and advertisers, and that's a bit of a unique approach to growing the SSP business. And so what we do is different than what the DSP does, which is really optimizing on behalf of the advertiser. Uh, but there are things that we do to really help focus 
uh, bring about the maximum return on ad spend uh, for, for advertisers. And that's been working quite well. We're, in fact, the fastest growing SSP globally. We added 100 new people to the Pomatic team last year. Hmm. Uh, we'll add something similar this year, you know, despite the, the coronavirus uh, slowdown. Uh, so we're, you know, we're growing our, uh, our people to probably almost 600 people this year. Uh, we introduced um, header bidding in 2012. We have OpenRap, which is one of the most widely deployed wrappers uh, out there globally. And we're really in a leader in omni-channel uh, programmatic advertising. So over half mobile, over 20% video and, and growing quickly. Oh, goodness. Well, that's actually a, 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 a perfect segue to what you and I have actually been talking about now for, for several months, uh, going back to the beginning of the crisis, which is, you know, what is the evolution of our uh, of digital advertising and marketing, in fact, going to be? What are we seeing in the marketplace? And what I've been so fascinated in uh, our conversations is, you know, there's this tendency to look at uh, uh, ads. First of all, there's a tendency to think of companies as uh, like Pubmatic as being part of the ad tech sector. And right. then there's a second tendency to think of the ad tech sector as, oh, those are these guys in the basement who are just kind of dealing with, uh, you know, with technology and fulfillment. But in fact, you're actually looking at billions and billions of data points around consumer interactions and business interactions and transactions. So you're sitting on an enormous amount of consumer and business data with a lot of insights about that. And we started talking a while ago about COVID-19's impact on ad spend. I'm really interested on behalf of the audience out there in knowing what you're seeing. And, and I, I know you're optimistic, but what are you actually seeing on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so let's talk about kind of in the short term, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of months. So, you know, we've been releasing this data every two weeks or so since the lockdowns began in, in mid-March. Uh, and what we saw is that there was a pretty precipitous decline in ad spend, uh, which started right in mid-March. And the good news is that it bottomed out uh, at the beginning of April. So we saw the first two weeks of April really be the, the bottom in terms of, you know, CPMs and, and overall throughput of spend. Uh, at the end of May, we saw in the U.S., for instance, uh, almost a 15% increase in ad spend month over month. So, you know, May versus uh, April. So I think that's a, a really uh, healthy sign. Still below, you know, pre-coronavirus uh, levels, but I think we see a path to uh, getting there, uh, getting back to pre-coronavirus levels in Q3, if not in Q3, then certainly in Q4. Uh, one interesting thing is that mobile and video is really leading the upturn. Uh, so we're seeing a significant share shift in spend away from um, desktop. And of course, people are not at work anymore mm -hmm. uh, like they used to be you know, in, in, in their offices. Uh, but instead, we're seeing a huge shift into uh, mobile devices and into video ad formats. Uh, you know, so we're, you know, we, we've caught the bottom and, and see the growth now. You've just you just made me think of something that I hadn't thought of before, but it is obvious um, we are not in our offices, which may be the last places that desktop uh, systems still exist. Um, are you seeing uh, 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 patterns during the day parts changing? Because logically, uh, all that shopping that would have been taking place or consumption that would have been taking place during working hours on desktops must be shifting in some way. What, what are you seeing there? 
Yeah, I think, you know, in the pre-coronavirus period, there was a definite, let's say, pattern throughout the day where uh, we would see, you know, mobile traffic in the morning, people are going to work. And so they're on the subway, or they're in their car, uh, checking their mobile devices, even though they shouldn't. Uh, then, you know, they get to work, they do some news reading, oftentimes in the morning, as they're kind of getting caught up on things. And then at the lunchtime hour, we see the peak in uh, commerce-related activities. So people take a little break and they're, you know, buying something for the weekend or whatever the case is. And then we kind of see that pattern unwind. That now has changed because everybody's workday is quite different, right? Uh, I, for instance, I wake up about 10 minutes before my first meeting in the morning, <laughs> uh, enough time to brush my teeth, uh, change my clothes and get a cup of coffee before I, you know, boot up my computer. Right. Uh, so, you know, that, that trend has changed. Obviously you've got kids that are at home, uh, that are on devices. You know, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm bullish about the future is if you think about the typical home, it has fewer TVs than it does people in the home. Right. And so media consumption is going off of the TV and instead onto the device because you know, your kids, your spouse, yourself, everybody's watching the show that they want to watch and they're typically watching it on their, you know, iPad or, or tablet or phone. Um, and because there's more of those devices in the home than there are TVs, it means there's going to be a, a share shift away from, you know, analog traditional TV into, into digital OTT. But it also, it's interesting because it, it, uh, there, there's a bit of a paradox in there as well. Uh, uh, maybe you can unpack it uh, for me. Um, one of the effects, obviously, of the virus is to reintroduce the concept of the nuclear family, because, right. you know, we're basically now stuck at home. Yeah. Um, if you've got kids, they're not going off to the ball field to play. They're not staying for after school activities, all taking place in the home. And you might even have the third generation, the parents that you moved away from maybe moving in as well. But at the same time, you have more fragmentation in the home with the different devices. Are you able to see demographic patterns in there as well? Yeah, I mean, the, you're you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, people also, uh, my own observation has been people are consuming media. Oftentimes people would watch the same show together. And now people are together so much that they want to be apart, <laughs> even though they're, you know, they're, they're in the, your own home, right? Uh, because you're with the same people you know, day in and day out. And so media time, consumption time can become a way for people to go to a different corner of the house, put headphones on and, and watch their own shows. Um, so there are, you know, I think important divergences. And we see this when we look at, um, I would say national patterns more so than just in the US uh, where you'll see these different, uh, different demographic patterns playing out. In Asia, for instance, it is much more common to have three generations uh, living together in a home. Um, and there again, you know, there may only be two TVs in a house, but there could be eight or 10 people living in that home. Um, so that's going to lead to more digital consumption. Do you, do you think, are you seeing any evidence that this increased digital consumption over multiple different kinds of devices is creating more traffic to new kinds of content. I'll give you, I'll, I'll try and personalize this uh, um, or give you an example. Um, Quibi launched really right. right in the middle of this crisis. Um, it's gotten a lot of snarky press, but it was designed specifically to uh, create a, 
uh, creative forms for mobile phones. Very explicitly kind of narrative style creativity for mobile devices. Are we seeing evidence that that kind of specific creative format is, uh, has legs to it? Or are we seeing something else? Yeah, no, I would say from the data we've looked at so far, we haven't seen uh, evidence of that specifically. Uh, but what I would say is we're seeing people spend a lot more time on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they're at home. Uh, as you said, they're not able to go out to sporting events or you know the ballpark with their with their kids, perhaps. Uh, and and uh, you know now we're at the beginning of summer. Many summer camps are closed, um, and so there is a shift in terms of the amount of time that's being spent on the internet, uh, as well as the types of um, let's say transactions uh, or activities that people are doing on the internet. Uh, so, for instance, you know my son takes piano lessons. And he's doing those over an iPad, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, has not been done before uh, at scale, as far as I can tell. Uh, and so that's a new type of use case, uh, I think, on the Internet. So we're seeing, you know, a significant shift. And this is one of the reasons why I think we will see the Internet uh, roughly double in size over the next couple of years and advertising right, right alongside with it. Do you think, I, I wanted to, to get to that because the, the obvious question uh, following from all this, and again, we, we had a provocative title. We have a provocative title for this program, which is, you know, uh, uh, the internet is going to double in two years and advertising will too. Um, so what gives you the confidence that these changes will be permanent and rather than, you know, a yeah. reversion to the, uh, the previous norm? So I think two important changes uh, have occurred as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. So the first is that offline transactions are moving online. Right. So if we think about a lot of what the internet has been used for, obviously it's content viewing and consumption. So you're reading news or you're watching a, uh, some broadcast of some sort. Um, E-commerce obviously has been, uh, has been on the rise. Uh, but now we're seeing a much wider and more complex array of transactions than ever before. Uh, and you can go down kind of vertical by vertical and you can see this shift happening. So, for instance, you know, commerce is an uh, easy example, right? We see more online shopping, right. things like grocery shopping that historically were a little bit harder to do uh, online now has moved online in a big way. Think about automotive. Most of the ad, uh, automotive ads that I see are about buy your car online and a dealership will come deliver it to you. Yep. So there's an example of a very complex high ticket transaction, you know, could be 20 to 50, $60,000 that, you know, if you've been to a dealer, you know, it takes hours to, to go get a car. Uh, now you can do that from the comfort of your home and you get that car uh, delivered to you. Um, telemedicine is another great one. So since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, nobody wants to go to the doctor. A lot of those appointments are moving to an app-based environment where you see your doctor online. The growth in that has been staggering. It's something like 30 to, to 90x in the last couple of months. Uh, now, Medicare, which, you know, controls the reimbursement rules, they, pre-coronavirus, did not reimburse for telehealth appointments. They basically right. said that's not the same as going to see your doctor. They changed those rules during coronavirus, and they signaled that they are not likely to change them back to the way they were. Right. So that's a great example of where we're going to see this, you know, permanence uh, happening. Let um, me, let me yeah. probe you on, on a bit of this, because as you know, we're doing a lot of research on this. 
and we released a, a, a study, I think it was just last week or 10 days ago on um, the uh, 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 coronavirus, uh, coronavirus impact on um, retailing and retail-based brands. And there's some very striking uh, material in there. One of which is that seven of 10, 70% of uh, consumers are trying new brands during this period of quarantine. And the majority of those consumers intend to stick with at least one or more of the new brands they're trying. So there's this astonishing yeah. trial moment happening that's going to overturn things. And another one, of course, is the entire retail environment is shifting to contactless uh, shopping, contactless payment. Stores are becoming, uh, as we've been saying for years, less about shopping and more really just as distribution hubs. Right. Um, what I'm wondering is when you when you step back from all of that, what are the permanent changes on advertising so so let's say i i'm accustomed i'm accustomed to uh going to the store to shop for my groceries i've now experimented with instacart and with uh whole foods and with fresh direct uh and i love it and i'm not going to go back to shop in the store anymore for groceries i don't need to but what's the what's the knock-on effect for uh, for advertising there how does advertising change based on my consumption change yeah, so you know what we see happen there is, and you know, Instacart maybe is a great example of this. They've just launched right a pretty significant uh, advertising business, and so if you think about inside of the retail grocery store, there's a lot of advertising that you may not even notice that's happening behind the scenes, right? Trade promotion, end caps, all of, you know. There's a lot of budgets that yep. go into, you know, why does the Doritos chips uh, always show up at the the end of the, that grocery store? Which we should add on behalf of the audience that between the 1960s and the 1980s, the percentage of marketing budgets spent below the line, primarily on uh, trade promotions, kind of inverted. It went from being a kind of a small minority of spending in the 1960s to the overwhelming majority of spending. Exactly, so that now is going to move online to where shoppers are shopping, right? And so when you go into Instacart, um, as one example, but you know, it could be Walmart grocery shopping or Target grocery shopping online. Now, what we see is that those same uh, uh, brands, right? Those same product uh, creators, they want to get to you while you're in that environment to market their products, right? And so that's a wholesale shift in terms of uh, what's happening with how data is being uh, is being used and how advertisers are targeting consumers. But it also implies that a lot of the trade promotion spend that for decades and decades and decades has been historically concentrating in these extraordinarily powerful brick and mortar retailers, they're not gonna have as much power over that trade promotion spend anymore. Because if people aren't going into the stores, if people are using intermediaries like Instacart or Fresh Direct for shopping, that's a big chunk of change coming out of the pockets that, of retailers. That's a big chunk of change. And I think where you see the traditional retailers fighting back is, I think what they've discovered is that the, um, uh, the online shopping and then you go and you pick up has been a huge bright spot for them. So Target, for instance, has grown that category uh, massively in the last couple of months. Uh, and it goes back to your thesis about the brick and mortar store being really a distribution hub. Right. And so what they're able to do with that 
you know, Target store footprint is you can go online, you can shop for pretty much everything you need, right? Target's got a pretty wide SKU selection uh, and you make one stop uh, at the store uh, and they load it up in your car and off you go. And that can be groceries, it can be home improvement, it can be clothing, right? You know, it can be an appliance, even a small appliance. So a number of categories of products. So we are seeing a fundamental shift uh, in retail behavior. I think one of the markers that I look at that shows this will be long-lived shift is if you look at the demographics, you're seeing an online acceleration for the people that move slowest, which is older people. Mm -hmm. I don't mean physically they move the slowest. I mean, they move the slowest in terms of changing their habits. Right. And so my dad's a good example. He goes to the bank once a week. I don't know what he does there uh, each time he goes, but he's been doing that for 40 years. Uh, so the first, the only thing that's changed that is now coronavirus. So mm -hmm. it's forced him to download his bank's app and figure out how to make it work, right? And so when you see that older demographic making the, those behavioral shifts, uh, that to me is a, is a clear marker of uh, an important inflection point. I taught my dad how to use Drizzly and life will never be the same. Yeah, there you go, right? Exactly. So the other, I think, big shift that I see that's going to grow the internet and grow ad spend is that people are freeing up huge amounts of time. And this doesn't happen very often. You know, the, the probably the last time we saw consumers free up a significant amount of time was when the iPhone came out, right? Mm -hmm. That was, you know, maybe 15 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Uh, so without having to commute, uh, without having to wait uh, in the doctor's office for a 10 minute appointment that, you know, used to take you an hour and a half kind of door to door, uh, without having to go into a dealership for a full day to buy a car, you know, consumer time is being liberated in a very significant way. And what do consumers do when they have more time? They find new leisure activities, you know, new ways to spend that time. And it could be more time outside. It could be, you know, social issues or volunteering. It can also be and will be more entertainment and more media consumption, right? They're going to take this kind of time dividend and they're going to spend it, you know, in these, in these various buckets. So I think we're going to see more complex transactions happening on the internet. Uh, we're going to see higher ticket transactions. We're going to see more time being spent on the internet. Uh, and then we're going to see advertising, you know, fuel uh, a lot of these transactions. Yeah. Uh, and so this combination is going to lead to what I think is a very rapid growth in the internet over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's really uh, that that that's extraordinarily well articulated. And as you were talking, I, I was kind of seeing it. I, uh, we had as a guest uh, last week uh, on our um, uh, brand council town hall, Melissa Grady, the uh, the CMO from Cadillac. Right. And known, known Melissa for a bit. And one of the reasons I wanted her on is she had helped pioneer for Cadillac a whole um, virtual shopping, uh, a, uh, a concierge shopping uh, program that would allow people to make appointments with a central dealer organization and get real-time walkthroughs with cars. And I wanted right. to talk to her to see, well, what, what's happening now? Because it seems like you were ahead of the curve. And she yeah. said, it's, it's through the roof. And, and so you can kind of take a step back from that and what you're saying and what we're saying and saying, well, yeah, of course, we're freeing up more time for human beings to consume different kinds of things. A lot of that time will be filled with advertising and marketing, uh, but a lot of that advertising and marketing is going to be aimed at advancing the habit changes that are already coming into the marketplace. Exactly. 
how to shop differently, how to find things in different ways, how to consume differently. So you're right, in effect, we're almost introducing, we're using new kinds of activities to market new kinds of activities. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look at all the things that have moved online, right? You have a, uh, you know, a piano lesson for my kid, the shopping we talked about, obviously education, um, you know, your, your fitness classes have all moved online. All right. And so there's going to be content and there's going to be advertising and marketing around all of these things. What do you think, you know, specifically thinking about uh, connected TV, uh, there's been a, uh, we all from all manner of, uh, of evidence, both anecdotal and, and pretty deeply statistical, uh, it seems to be a, a, a massive wave of consumption of connected yes. TV. People are figuring out now how to use those uh, uh, Wi-Fi connected uh, 65 inch, you know, uh, uh, Vizios and TLCs that they bought. Right. Um, uh, uh, is that permanent? And, and who's going to, who's benefiting from that now? And who will benefit permanently from that? Yeah, I think, I think that is a permanent shift. Um, and again, it goes back to consumer behavior, which is when you have more, more digital devices in the home than the TV, people are spending time at home. What they figure out is how to watch exactly the show that they want to watch when they want to watch it. Uh, and once people unlock that, I don't think they're going to go back. You know, my favorite example of that is I, I try to uh, go running every day outside. Um, and sometimes my kids come with me and they ride their bikes and then we chat a little bit. When they don't come, uh, I have the Xfinity app, which I downloaded, and I can listen to CNBC uh, through my AirPods and just catch up on what's happening on the markets, you know, while I'm running. Um, so that's pretty cool, right? To be able to get my exercise in and, you know, see what's going on in, in the markets. Um, so I think we're going to see uh, the, obviously the OTT content creators uh, are, are going to be a huge beneficiary of this, right? So these are companies like Roku, et cetera. And I think the key is to look past the short term uh, to say, what does the market look like and how is it different over the next couple of years? Because that's really the the opportunity to go after. Does it does it benefit the uh, the incumbents who have decades of expertise in creating all kinds of forms of entertainment, or or are we going to see a uh, a new long tail movement uh, in video? I mean, I look at I'm a big fan of Roku. I've got it. I've got a one one of my TVs is a a, a, a Roku built Roku in. Yeah. Another I use it pretty frequently. I'm astonished at the 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 depth. I mean, just the the amount of stuff that's there. I just, is that, is it, how big is that going to be? Well, I think for the incumbents, the key is to leverage the assets that they have, right? Which are, you know, teams, know-how, relationships, right? Content libraries and pair that with, you know, frankly, what would have to be newfound agility. Mm -hmm. Because I think 2020, the business, the key business theme really is, is agility. That's the right? word. Agility. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the upfronts are the opposite, of course, of agility. And I think what advertisers are seeing is, hey, first we had the, the coronavirus. Now we have, you know, massive social change uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. I was just talking with my team in India. There was a huge cyclone that hit last week. So it's like, hey, we can't wait to see what next week is going to bring. Right? Uh, there's just so much, uh, so much change around us. And so being able to be agile for your advertiser clients so they can find the right environments, bring the right creative uh, to the conversation, you know, um, uh, meet audiences where they're consuming content, 
this, you know, the traditional processes of, hey, we sell the TV inventory upfront, you know, once a year, that process is not, is not going to work in this environment, right? Do so you think that's a permanent break? Find ways. Is that a, is that a permanent break? I think break? that's a permanent break, absolutely. And I think it is a permanent break. You know, one of the challenges in programmatic is that the spot market actually has a price discount, uh, not a price premium. And so there's a there's a an upside to uh, I think my internet connection here is a little bit unstable for a second, uh, but there's an upside to the um, uh, to the advertiser for waiting uh, rather than you know locking in savings up front, and so that's pushing you know more money into uh, into that spot market, and you know we've been working a lot for instance in header bidding in the OTT market. We've got a large team of developers working in this area for almost a year. We'll be making some large announcements in that area shortly because we think this is very disruptive technology that brings agility into the market and will better serve both consumers and advertisers. Now, now th there's uh, there's this dark cloud potentially hanging over all these things that we're talking about, uh, and that is the uh, degree to which the uh, the evolution of the internet away from third-party cookies the depth what's called in the industry the deprecation of the third-party cookie you know may influence the uh the evolution of media in particular the evolution of uh of television i mean so much of the of the infrastructure um for doing this kind of um agile flexible uh buying and matching of uh, advertising to uh, consumers to behaviors is built on the third-party cookie. So, how are you looking at uh, you know what we're doing around Project Rearc, which is now translating yeah. into an industry-wide? How are you thinking that this will affect uh, Pubmatic and the rest of the industry? Well, I think frankly, it's a huge opportunity that we as an industry have to get right, and so we're big believers in Project Rearc. You know what's happening there, and, and are supporting that. Uh, I think Prebid also has uh, some great technology working in this arena. Yes. So, you know, arguably the, the advantage that the walled gardens have enjoyed is that they have explicit consumer identity, right? You log into, you know, Gmail or Maps, you log into Facebook across different devices. Uh, and on the open web, it's been anonymous, right? And what we see is that when you have an anonymous sense of the user via the third-party cookie, the monetization rate is about uh, one third to one half versus when there is identity. And so the real opportunity now is to create explicit opt-in from the consumer where they share their identity in exchange for free content on the open web, just like they do inside of the walled gardens. Uh, and now we can move to level the playing field with the walled gardens and really uh, bring the experience up for the consumer where they're getting a more personalized experience and the monetization is significantly better. And so we've been very focused on this as an opportunity because uh, we think it can lead to significant uh, improvement in the quality of monetization and the quality of content that both advertisers and publishers enjoy in, in the open web. It's been, it's, you know, it's been a big uh, political and social uh, contest and debate, obviously. Uh, we've had these you know, conversations at IEB board meetings uh, for years. Tech Lab has been in the forefront of doing this work. What do, you, what do you think it will take to convince legislators and regulators, but also just frankly, average human beings, citizens, uh, 
who use the internet, um, that some kind of identity program or identity standards are beneficial and not harmful. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of tension around that. What will it take? Well, you know, I think that the consumer in some ways needs to be reminded about the value exchange and the trade of free content in exchange for advertising. You know, if we think back to much simpler times, think about the post-World War II TV era, you know, that trade was pretty explicit, right? You wanted to watch free broadcast TV. Uh, well, you know, you have Procter & Gamble and other companies that are supporting uh, that. And that was really the main source of media, uh, you know, opportunity from a consumer perspective uh, on, on the TV. Uh, now we've gotten to this world where all of this, you know, tracking is happening behind the scenes with third-party cookies, as you mentioned. And so I think consumers have not really been aware that their data is being used in exchange to fund content. Uh, and the reality is that when you, you can see survey after survey, when consumers are given the choice between, hey, you can pay for content uh, or you can have your data used to provide uh, advertising against it, uh, the vast majority of consumers choose the free option. And we're at a time now when you have 20% unemployment rate, right? Uh, and you have economic activity falling, you know, a big recession. I don't think the average consumer is going to go for more paid content, right? They're not going to reach for the third, fourth, fifth version of the Netflix subscription. I think they're much more likely to choose for uh, free ad supported content. Uh, and I think now is actually a perfect time to be having a, that dialogue with the consumers. But I think it is incumbent upon us as an industry to bring that dialogue to the forefront in a, you know, easy to understand way. Uh, and if we can do that, then I think, you know, consumers will, will make the right educated choice for themselves. Uh, and we can move forward on that basis. You know, uh, I, I want to end uh, with, uh, with one other question, a little bit or, orthogonal, although we, we've touched on it because we've talked a lot, obviously, about uh, COVID-19 and the, uh, the impact on consumption in the economy, obviously changes in society. We're in the midst of a uh, historic uh, uh, social movement right now too. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in the, in the 60s, so I, I well remember uh, the uh, uh, childhood during the civil rights era. And what we're seeing now on the streets in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder is um, is even seems even bigger uh, yeah. than that, and you know, as an industry, we're coming around again to to ask that question to address the question: What can we be doing? What should we be doing? Um, you're very socially aware, socially engaged. Um, what do you think? What are you doing? What do you think we should be doing? We, IEB, other trade organizations, the rest of the media and advertising industry, to address this this moment of not just social unrest, but social and cultural redress. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we're at a very uh, interesting inflection point. Uh, and again, you could accuse me of being overly optimistic, uh, but I am optimistic on this front for a couple of reasons. You know, when I, when you watch the protests and you see who's there, it feels very different in that, you know, at a, many of these protests, I would say the majority of people are not black, they're white, they're Asian, you know, they're Hispanic. Uh, so here you have, you know, this horrific murder of, uh, of George Floyd, as you mentioned, uh, but you have people of all different, you know, colors and ages that are in support of the need for change, 
right? And I think that's a, that's different than what I've seen, you know, in the past, let's say five to 10 years. And it's creating a dialogue. And I think the dialogue has shifted from, if I'm not, uh, it's no longer good enough to be uh, against racism. Uh, now the question is, what am I doing individually as a leader, as a company to create a better outcome, right? And that better outcome in my mind is really about the quality of opportunity because I view that as really the long-term sustainable way uh, to solve uh, the inequality problem, right? Which is, you know, it's one thing to donate some amount of money, but if you can change how you recruit, if you can change how you retain, if you can change how you procure services as a company, you know, those are much bigger budgets. Uh, and those are sustainable things that you can do now, but will last the test of time 5, 10, 15 years from now that can create uh, equal opportunity. Yeah. And so that's really the dialogue we're having inside of Pomatic. Uh, you know, we've, we've released uh, a diversity and inclusion report for the last three or four years. I think we're the only you know, independent company in ad tech that does that. And the reason we do that is we find every year that there are things we're doing well, but there are things that we aren't doing well. Uh, and things that we need to change. And so holding that mirror up and looking at the data, you know, forces us to confront the things that we can do better. Uh, and so we've made good changes, but we've got plenty more to, to do. Uh, and so, um, you know, every year for us, it's about what are two or three tangible things we can do to move that forward. And we're looking at how can we, you know, even expand our, our commitment in that regard. Actually, you know, you're reminding me. And, and, uh, and so now since we're talking publicly about it, I guess I, we are committing to this. As you know, uh, this morning, I just called a special IEB board meeting yes. uh, in, uh, in July. Uh, we just had our, for the audience, we just had our, our virtual Washington board meeting, which is less about the board talking about industry issues and more about uh, congressional leaders, other political leaders and observers coming in and talking to us. So we're doing a special meeting to talk about internal industry issues. Um, it would be great if you can send me some of those past reports because we can use that as a uh, as content for one of the discussions and as a model for um, asking questions about what we can be doing on an industry basis. We'd be um, happy to do that. Yeah, that would be great. One of the things that we're uh, pushing for, we uh, just made a change. We're calling it the change equity movement. And so we're um, giving everybody on the IEB team uh, two days of PTO a month from now through November to work for any political change or social change um, organization of their choosing. Up to them, they do it. We're going to use our DNI Council for report backs, uh, but they don't need to seek permission. It's two days yeah. to invest. And we did the calculation, and just with our staff, that totals up to 840 days of investment in social and political change, which is actually the equivalent of having a three-person FTE department yeah. uh, doing nothing but social change for a full year. And that's in one little tiny nonprofit. So it, it turns out there actually are lots of things that companies can do um, without that don't require a lot of grease to them. Um, it's not hard. And so that's one of the conversations we need yeah, to have. Yeah, and I think the number one asset we have is our, you know, capabilities, our creativity, uh, you know, all of the, the things that make us who we are, you know, that we've honed over decades, that I think is the biggest asset we can contribute to creating change, right? You know, putting our energy uh, and our time and our thinking into the right uh, activities. 
Um, so I think your your activity there harnesses exactly that, which is exciting. Great. Well, Rajiv Gold, how, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being part of IAB there. Um, and thanks for actually some, some very uh, positive and uh, well-backed up data-enriched um, observations about the marketplace uh, we're moving into. I'm looking forward to uh, following up with you actually probably I think next week at our programmatic leaders uh, meeting yes. and at our next uh, several board meetings and probably at a lot of places in between. So uh, Perfect. so best of luck as you continue your quarantine and, uh, and build Pomatic. Thank you very much. It's been a, been a great pleasure to be with you in the audience today and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Randall. So, thanks, thanks, Rajiv. So on tomorrow's IAB There, we are excited to welcome Shailen Dar, the CEO of Method Media Intelligence, as we'll discuss misperceptions of ad verification during COVID-19. So please do join us at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow for that. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Alts, John Ward, and Twafika Mohinudin. I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB. Thank you for watching. Come back tomorrow because if it's 2 p.m. Eastern time on a weekday, you know it's time to IAB there. Bye-bye. <laughs>